Welcome, everyone. It's a wrap with rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features extraordinary people who do special things to enrich our lives and people who have overcome major challenges and adversities in their lives to come out on top, as well as people who can educate us on an assortment of topics. My guest today is Lisa Lilly. Lisa is an attorney, adjunct professor of law, and writer whose works have appeared in various publications, such as Parade of Phantoms, Chick Flicks, Strong Coffee, and Hair Trigger. Lisa writes suspense novels, mysteries, and thrillers. The title story of her collection, The Tower, formerly known as Sears, and two other tales of urban horror, was recently made into a short film entitled Willis Tower. Lisa is also the author of the best-selling four-book, Awakening, Supernatural Thrower series, which has been downloaded 85,000 times. Lisa resides in Chicago and is a past officer of the Alliance Against Intoxicated Motorists, AAIM. She became involved with the organization after an intoxicated driver caused her parents' deaths in 2007. She is here to talk about her overcoming her grief of the accident taking her parents' lives, her work in the Alliance Against Intoxicated Motorists, and her helping people deal with a severe loss or grief. Welcome, Lisa, to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So what was going on in your life and your family's life before this event happened with your parents? I know there was a previous loss. Yes, my um, I have two older brothers and um, my oldest brother had one daughter and when she was very young, five or six years old, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor and she lived another five years, but she was only 11 when she died. And that obviously was a, was a huge loss for our family, especially my brother. And that happened about a little over two years before my parents' deaths. The good thing is that last holiday season in the winter, um, my whole family was in, my brothers live in other, other states and they both came in uh, it, like right before New Year's and we all visited at my parents, all my nieces and nephews were there. And it was a good um, gathering. We had a, a, a great time together. My brother Keith loves this pizza place you can only get in Chicago and we went there. I'm, I'm curious, the, what's, the, what's the name of that pizza place? Uh, Lou Melnati's. Okay, I haven't been there. I don't think they've expanded beyond Chicago yet, but they have a bunch of branches now. And he kind of, you know, twisted everyone's arms. My mom didn't like to come in the city, but it turned out to, I think, really be something our whole family needed was to be together and just have fun. We had mostly seen each other more on, you know, on sad occasions and we're thinking about that. So we had a, a really lovely holiday um, right before then uh, that, you know, we yeah. had this terrible thing happened, but at least we had that, that great holiday season. That, yeah, that was good. How did you learn uh, your parents had been hit by a motor vehicle? Yeah, I, it was the strangest uh, call. And uh, everyone I know who's been through this, it's a call, it's a knock at the door. I was home, I was working on something I was writing and I got this call from someone who asked me my name. And then he said, well, I'm calling from Loyola Hospital. I, I think we have your father here. And then he said, who is your father? So I gave my dad's name and he said, I'll call you back. And I 
just thought, I, I just didn't know what to think. And he yeah. did call back and told me, well, your dad's here. And there was a accident and he's having some tests. And I think he'd feel better if you were here. And I said, is my mom there? Because they were they were in their 80s. My dad was nearly 89. They mostly went places together. It would be rare for my mom to be out without my dad. And the, and the man said, no, she's not here, you know, but can you come? And I said, sure, of course, tried to call my parents, didn't get an answer. And I called a friend, I don't own a car. You don't really have to have one downtown. And, uh, but in this occasion I did, I called him and I said, can I borrow your car? And I think he got it more than I did. When you, when you get this kind of call, sometimes your brain just can't really take it in. And he said, let me drive you let me drive you to the emergency room. So when I got there, um, they took me into this small room and there was a chaplain there and the pastor from my parents' church and one of my cousins. And still I wasn't quite taking in how yeah. bad it was. And then that's when I don't even remember who explained to me that, you know, my parents, at first they just told me my dad had been crossing the street, had been hit by a car. They told me how extensive the injuries were. I consent, you know, signed the forms for surgeries. And I finally said, I can't reach my mother. I'm very worried. And that's when the um, chaplain said to me, I'm so sorry to tell you your mother didn't make it. Um, and, and it was, I don't even know how I took it in. It was just such a, a shock to, to hear that. And I'm kind of glad they gave me the information gradually rather than just all at once. So Lisa, were they, were they uh, in a car when it happened or were they pedestrians? They were pedestrians. So they were going, and this is why the pastor was there. They were going to an evening church service. They did a lot of volunteer work through the church. They, and they were crossing, um, there's a parking lot across from their church and they were crossing, it's like right directly across from the entrance and there isn't a crosswalk there, but almost everyone crossed there. And they had done that thing where you walk to the middle of the road and cause you see one lane is clear and you wait for the other yeah. lane yeah. to clear. And this person in this SUV came by and did not see them and, and just ran into them. Well, you were the one who had to tell your father about your mother's death and call the rest of the family. What, what was that like? Yeah, that, those were some of the hardest things I've ever done. They sure. had not wanted to tell my dad because he was going into the surgery and he kept asking about my mom and they didn't want to tell him without family there. So I went in and he was he was pretty aware and alert. And I, I said, dad, you know, do you remember you were in a, uh, that a car hit you? He said, yes. And he asked about my mom and I said, I'm so sorry. She didn't make it. And his, just his face just went so still. And the first thing he said was, I didn't get the license plate. And it just so hit me because my dad was, he wasn't a super expressive person, but he was always, he would try to do something to make things better and fix things. And the idea, you know, his first thought was, well, what could I have done that he had, I found out later, I mean, he had been hit, bounced off the hood and the roof and thrown off to the side of the road. And the idea that he's thinking I should have got the license plate, you know, and I told him at that point, I knew, I said, 
they've already arrested the person. Don't worry about it. Um, and I, you know, told him I loved him and, and held his hand and then went back out because they needed to take him into surgery. And then the next hardest thing was really to call my, my oldest brother. You know, I just thought he just lost his daughter two years ago and I have yeah. to tell him this. And I don't even remember what I said, what he said, he was stunned. He said he would be on his way in. And then my other brother, I called. And at some point he passed the phone to his wife, my sister-in-law, who I've known forever. It's since I was 11. And by the time I told her what happened, she said, Tim's already packing up the van. He's on his, he's going to be on his way. Yeah. Um, well, you were in shock, you know, I mean. Yeah, you just, I had the weirdest thought that, because uh, I have all these nieces and nephews and the oldest one was 25 living in Chicago. And I so wanted to call her. We're very close. And I wanted to call her for comfort for me. And I thought, oh, that's so selfish. Like I'm, she's a little girl. She wasn't anymore, but I'm like, she's the little girl. I have to take care of her. I can't call her and tell her this. And it was this crazy, of course, of course I had to tell her. I mean, her, her mom called her and told her, but of course we had to tell yeah. her and my other nieces and nephews, but it was as if, if I didn't tell any of them, it, I don't know, it wouldn't be real. And so I feel like, you know, people haven't been through it. Like there's just all kinds of crazy things that go through your head that don't make oh, any sure. sense later. Sure. When did you find out uh, that the driver was intoxicated at the time and about his history? The um, police chief from, this happened in Brookfield where my parents lived and where I grew up and the police chief came and it was in that little emergency room waiting room and he came to see me. And I'm pretty sure he's the one who told me. And the first thing he said was just, this person was intoxicated. And we all have pictures in our heads of certain things. And for whatever reason, I thought, I pictured somebody who was like 21 or 22, a young person who, this happened at seven in the evening on a Monday night. And I thought, oh, this is someone who went out to dinner maybe with their friends and had and asked too many beer beers and didn't know yet. You know, they didn't have the experience yet to know that they were too drunk to drive. And I thought, how awful for that person. What a terrible thing to live with. And then the police chief said, well, you know, this, he, this is someone, he's from your town. He was about my age, about, you know, 45, 46, that he had a previous DUI. He had two. He had one about eight, 10 years before, but the previous, most recent had been two days before. He had been driving his own car, um, crashed it. I don't remember into a pole, wrapped around a pole, totaled it. He walked wow. away wow. and was uh, already charges were pending against him for that. And then he borrowed, I found out later, borrowed his brother's car. All I knew that day is he had borrowed someone else's car uh, and being out at a local restaurant very nearby and was driving home and that I, I want to say he was almost double the legal limit and that I just, I, I feel like that's when I just started feeling so angry because I thought this isn't someone who just made a mistake and not just, I mean, that's a big deal, but who made a mistake in judgment. It's someone who should have, no, like, you know, should he, he knew how what happened when you drink and drive by experience yeah. and he just did it again two days yeah complete irresponsibility I mean, yeah to total it, it 
And that was, uh, I don't know if it's easier or harder in that situation to that there is someone who caused it, but it, that was a really difficult thing to deal with that, you know, this person's choice to drink and drive again yeah. uh, caused this. Well, what was it like dealing with your mother's death when your father was still undergoing surgeries and other treatments uh, in the hospital? Yeah, that, that was, I really almost didn't deal with her death. I feel like I didn't truly grieve until probably a month or two after my dad died because everything was that first night we were, um, my niece and her husband did come to the hospital. We stayed all night, you know, waiting for news. And then the night before my mom's wake, they had to take my dad in for another surgery. They had wanted to wait because that's so much trauma to the body that they had, they had to do it. So I didn't sleep hardly at all. I was at the hospital all night before my mom's wake. And then I ended up being late to it because of traffic and, it was almost this surreal kind of experience. You know, all these people were coming up and talking to me. And I had one lovely friend who just, she came with me and she just hooked her arm through mine and she just stayed at my side. And there were times she just took me away and said, you gotta have some water. You gotta have something to eat. You know, don't just sit down. Um, and that's almost how that, it was about six and a half weeks that my dad went through. I would like to pause a moment to tell you that I just finished reading one of our past guests' book, Soaring into Greatness, A Blind Woman's Vision to Live Her Dreams and Fly by Gail Hamilton. Gail's first six weeks of life began within an incubator. Six months later, doctors discovered RLF, an eye condition caused by the infusion of 100% pure oxygen. By age 11, she was completely blind. Soaring into Greatness follows Gail's story as her outer visual world merged with her inner vision, forcing her to listen with her inner voice to follow her heart and tune into her intuition. Subjected to physical and emotional abuse, ostracized and oftentimes feeling alone, Gail's journey is one of the courage and perseverance it takes to find one's way through the darkness and soar. The editorial reviews are stellar. President Jimmy Carter commented, a beautiful story of someone who has overcome a physical handicap and changed it into a force that is an inspiration. Marilyn Van Derber, Miss America 1958, said, a compelling and powerful story. Robert Dean Smith of the Metropolitan Opera wrote, a gleaming example of one of the greatest and most profound desires of the human race, that of the search for truth. You will not be disappointed reading Gail's story. Available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, in paperback or e-version. All the information pertaining to the book will be listed in the podcast notes. This, he, he, from the second surgery, there was a week when he didn't wake up yet. And it was almost like there wasn't any room to really yeah. grieve. I did give a talk, like speak at my mom's funeral mass. And I almost didn't, but I, cause I thought I can't, and neither of my brothers felt like they could do it. And I woke up at five in the morning, I couldn't sleep anyway. And I thought I have to say something about my mother. And I did, but I, I, I just, it just was, I could barely think about it. You know, it was all about, will my dad get through this? What medical care does he need? What decisions should we make? And just trying to be there for, for him. And I think probably everyone in my family felt yeah. like 
You have written and spoken about uh, things people say that can make grieving harder. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, and, and this is difficult to, to express because I never want people to feel um, it's hard. It's hard to comfort someone. So it's like, I don't want to make it harder for people. And at the right. same time, maybe it would help to know, um, you know, one, one thing people would say, and I'm, you know, I'm, I don't think I've said it to anyone, but maybe I have that idea that, well, God never gives us more than we can bear. And that's it. Someone came up and said that to me at my mom's funeral. And, and I just happened, my older brother who had lost his daughter was in my sight line. And I, I wanted, I did not say it, but I wanted to say, you are really saying that to me? I mean, do you want to go say that to my brother who lost his only child? And now our mother's dead and our dad has just had a surgery and he's, there's a good chance he won't wake up. And you know, people do have things they can't bear. Like all these thoughts went through my head at the time that I thought of someone I knew in law school who had committed suicide. And I, I felt like, are you saying if people can't handle it, they're, there's something wrong with them, you yeah. know, yeah. but at the same time, this was someone I had known many years ago who I knew had had many struggles in his life with alcohol. And he looked sober and he looked like better than I had seen him. And I thought, this is something he needs. I think he needs that he believes that helps him. And I just need to, I can't poke at that. So I just said, well, there's more than one opinion on that. And thank you for coming. And, very, and that, very diplomatic of you. It, and it really, the only reason I mention it is that sometimes when you're grieving, it can be really hard because other people sometimes need you to make them feel better. And that can be hard. Um, so if something that it can be better to say something a little bit more generic, almost like just, I'm sorry. You know, the other thing that was hard for me was people would say, oh, God had a plan. And in, 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 we, you know, this was just God's plan for your parents. And I think that can be challenging no matter what, whether someone's religious or not. But in this situation, it felt like they were letting the person who did it off the hook. And I finally, only a few people said it, but I finally started saying, I know who was driving the car and it wasn't God. It was a drunk driver. And I think people understood that, um, but it was, when you really take that statement apart, if you're grieving, it can sound like someone is saying to you, hey, feel better. There's an all-powerful being who purposely did this to yeah. you, to your family. And I would never, if someone had a loss and they said that to me, like, I feel my child died because it was God's plan. I would never contradict that. I would say, I'm glad that comforts you. But I also would not say it to someone who suffers a loss because you just you don't know if that's how they feel. So yeah. it, that can, those kind of things where you try to put a meaning on it can sometimes make it a little worse for people. Well, I'm glad we touched on that subject because I think there's a lot of people listening to this and you know, they'll, they'll understand what you're saying and it may make a difference. What things um, do, do people say that does help? Yeah, there, there were some really uh, wonderful things. For me, it really comforted me when people would tell me a good memory of my parents um, or 
I, my godmother talked to me, it was right at my mom's funeral and my mom and I had some rocky times. We got along great when I was a kid. And even when I was a teenager, um, when I was an adult and felt more vocal about expressing myself and our differences, we had, we had a lot of clashes and she came up to me and said, I wish you had known your mother when she was your age. She said she did all these things women weren't supposed to do. And my mom and I had quite an age difference, a 40 year age gap. So the world was very different, you know, when I, when I was in my twenties than when she was. So my godmother was giving me context and she said, oh, you know, women weren't supposed to go on trips without chaperones and your mom and her girlfriend went off to New York and they went off to the West Coast. And she said, and your mom bought her own car and women weren't supposed to do that. And I felt like she had given me this gift by saying, hey, if you and your mom were contemporaries, you would have got on great. You know, you would have really liked each other. And that was such a nice thing for her to share, knowing that we had had some difficulties. Um, So that was comforting. And really the one thing that helped tremendously was people who two months down the road or three months or four months down the road would call and say, how are you doing? Um, You know, I know it's been a few months, like, how are you feeling? Is there anything I can do? Because that's when sort of the rest of the world has moved on, you know, understandably, everyone can't be focused on your loss, but I know I felt, and many people I talked to felt, that's when you're feeling most alone and at a, at a, at a loss and people aren't right there anymore. Right. And it really was nice when people would do that or even just send a card a couple months down the road and say, I was thinking about your parents. Uh, I really miss them. Uh, just, just to acknowledge that, yes, you're still feeling a loss later or maybe that first Christmas send a note and say I know it's the first Christmas or if you're whatever holiday you celebrate Hanukkah you know I know it's the first time um and I'm thinking of you and that that was just really kind and really nice you learn who your friends are yeah yeah and you really I really appreciated people who did that you have also written about how our culture doesn't allow much room for grieving. Was that true for you and your family? There were a lot of ways I felt like it was. And that was one example, the fact that, um, I mean, first I should say people were amazing at the time. You know, where I worked, I worked at a very busy law firm and I had senior partners I barely knew called me and said, can I help? Can, can I take something off your plate? Can I go to court for you? But if you fast forward a couple months, you know, one, most people kind of, we go on with our lives, we sort of expect people to be, get over things. And certainly in a work context, um, I started feeling, oh, I need to take on some more work to, to make up for the time that I missed. And I feel fortunate that I could scale back. I could leave work early every day to go see my dad in the hospital. But at some point I felt like I've got to make up for this. And I, I took on too much too fast. I took on a very difficult case and it was really hard to, to transition back off of that. Like it, it was nobody's fault, but the way our companies and our cultures are built, they're not built for you to go through some grief later to have a rough time. Uh, 
I knew someone years ago, I worked at a company, it was a, a like factory and distribution company. She'd been there for 15 years and her daughter had a very late, she had a stillbirth and they would not let this woman take off for the funeral because it wasn't immediate family, meaning her grandchild who didn't, you know, who died yeah. wasn't immediate. They wouldn't let her take off to be with her daughter because their grief policy allowed you know, two days. And, and she said, but that's my daughter. She is my immediate family in there. And they said, no. And she was so bitter about that. In so many places, that's, that's the case that it's a day or a few days, and there isn't any room for six months down the road, you realize you're in a really bad place. And likewise, our sort of cultural views of grief, um, I mean, there are good things about it. People recognize that there are stages, but there's also this idea that you go through these stages and you're done. And really most people I got to know, um, and this helped me to realize I was not alone, that sometimes five years later, you something happens and you just go through a really rough time. And, and I've had people say to me, yeah, but that was so long ago. What, you know, that, why, why would that still be a problem? Or like the month of January is still often very hard for me. That's when the crash happened. Oh, absolutely, sure. And it's 14 years later, you know, but I still will have times when that's really rough and we, people really close to me understand that. But I feel like if I say it to someone who doesn't know me as well, they're, they're a little, I mean, no one says anything terrible, but they're also almost puzzled by well that. and a lot of those people have probably never been through that experience yeah i think that's yeah. quite possible so you yeah. think oh but you get over it and, yeah. and yes and no you do you don't stay in that place where everything feels dark and it's you know it's not the way it was in the beginning but now and then it you know it is and i think that's really normal it can help for people to understand that that's normal and yeah. part of it well it's it's also Nice if you can talk to somebody who's been in the same trench you have. Yes, yes, for sure. So you know, so you understand that it's not that there's something wrong with you. Right. Now, the local newspapers and television stations cover the story of your parents' deaths. How was it for you uh, talking to the reporters and why did you do it? It, it was sometimes, um, sometimes it kind of helped because depending on the reporter. Um, the first person I talked to was a friend of a friend. So he had, it was someone I trusted. And I did it mainly because, and I still believe this, that there are people who, who still don't really grasp how dangerous drinking and driving is. And because like, you know, we're human beings, we rationalize. And a lot of people, and I had heard it over the years from people, my niece told me she would hear people say it, they say things like, oh, you know, I haven't had that many drinks. I'm, I'm only a couple miles from home. My car knows the way home by itself. And I'm not going on expressways. I won't be going fast. And part of why I felt like I needed to tell the story as much as I could was this guy was, you know, he was going two miles home. He wasn't speeding. He was driving away. He had driven, you know, it turned out he had been to this restaurant many times. He had driven this way probably hundreds of times. Um, he, it was all the things people tell themselves and what happened, he turned a corner and he didn't see those, these two yeah. people. He, he wasn't them. paying attention. 
Yeah, yeah. He, he didn't. And there were, um, when this happened, there was an aunt, just happened to be an ambulance on the other side of the street who saw my parents and had stopped to let them cross. And there was a pedestrian who saw all of it happen, saw my parents in the street, came to tell me later, a year later at a benefit that they were smiling and holding hands, which was such a nice thing. He came just to tell me that, but like these people saw my parents, yeah. this man who was, had been drinking so much did not. Yeah. And I, I felt like if just one person read that story and made a different choice one night, um, maybe that would make a difference. It also had a nice, uh, effect of uh, a couple local papers did some really nice stories about the volunteer work my parents did and a stranger someone none of us knew sent a note to to the family saying I read about your parents and I didn't know them but I found their story so inspiring and she described some volunteer work she started doing because of reading this and so it in that sense, it made me feel good too that talking about the things they did in their life and what kind of people they were might also be inspiring. To right, people. right. I advocate for the uh, Male Breast Cancer Coalition. And, you know, my, my motto is if I can just touch one person, I'm happy. You know, yeah. and I'm, sure, I'm sure I'm touching more than one, but, but I, you know, I'm happy with just one. Right. The, the idea, even if it's one person who, you right. know, does something, whether it's a prevention, becomes more aware, it, it right. really can, I believe it really can make a difference. Lisa, was there a low point during the grieving process and did that prompt you to make any changes? There was, a, um, it was maybe six months after my dad, uh, my dad died. And this was where I had gotten on this this one, I was on lots of cases, but this one particular one that was so difficult. And I was, um, I was working from like 7.30 in the morning till I get home at 8.30 at night. And then I might get a call at nine or 10 at night that something, some emergency because uh, the case was in another time zone. So uh, you know, everything was thrown off. And, uh, and I was walking to work one day after particularly difficult, um, time. In fact, I had missed, I had really wanted to go. It sounds other people wouldn't maybe understand, but I really wanted to go to the 4th of July parade because my dad was a World War II veteran. And almost every year I took the train out, watched with my parents when my niece Emma was alive. Sometimes her parents would come in. She loved to see her grandpa in the parade. My other nieces and nephews would come. And afterwards there was a picnic with all my dad's friends from AMVETS and a lot of my cousins would come. And I so needed that. I needed to be with those people who knew my parents. I wanted to see my cousins. Um, I was barely, I was at work all the time. I was barely seeing my family who was here. And after a particularly rough week, I was walking to work and I saw the CTA bus coming and I just, I had this, I had been feeling so terrible for so long. I thought if I stepped in front of that bus, it would all be over. I'd be done. I would not feel this way anymore. And then immediately I thought I could never do that to my brothers. I could never do that to my nieces and nephews. That would be a horrible thing to do to them. And then it really scared me that that was all that was sort of 
standing between me and that. Like, I like to think I would never do something like that, but it was really scary. And I went to work and I, I went to um, our equivalent of human resources and said, I am in bad shape. I need to take some time off. Um, I need to get off this case. Like, it's just it, my, I, I need help. I need to just take a break. And, and I have to say the, the woman, she was terrific. She said, I understand. And if you have any trouble with anyone, let me know. And I literally just sent an email to everyone I worked with in the firm and said, I'm taking some time off. I had some scheduled time um, for my niece's wedding and I just extended it. I took three weeks. I didn't have that coming to me, but in that sense, again, I was fortunate. I had been at this firm a long time. I had good relationships. You know, they, I would be hard to replace. Um, not impossible. No one's impossible to replace, yeah. but you know, it wasn't a thing where they could just hire a new person tomorrow. So I took the time. And during that time, mostly what I did after the family time with the wedding, I just spent some time alone. I went somewhere I had been before on vacation that I, I felt good, a place where I usually went to writing retreats. And I just cried a lot. I cried a lot looking at like beautiful sunsets and just cried. And I thought about what I wanted in my life. And that was when I had for a long time thought about um, leaving this kind of intense work atmosphere and all the hours and all the pressure and either starting my own firm, working for a nonprofit. And I thought, I need to make a change. Like this is not a livable, this is not livable sure. and you're going through all this grief and I can't even get an hour to like spend with someone in my family or I can't take the 4th of July off to, right. to be with my family. And it took me about a year, but I spent that year like exploring options, deciding what to do. And I feel like that was a big turning point for me. I still felt pretty bad for a lot of that year, but I was prioritizing feeling better and trying to make some changes that in the long run, I thought would, would help me be more emotionally healthy. But you, you could see perhaps some light in the tunnel. Yes. Yes. Where before, I know that's, you know, it's a little bit of a cliche, but before yeah. it really felt dark. Everything yeah. I, and, and when I look back, I'm like, the, you know, it, I always had that freedom to make that change. But when I felt so bad, I couldn't, I couldn't see it. Yeah. What was the catalyst for you getting involved uh, in a nonprofit that focuses on preventing intoxicated driving and on helping victims? I got a call. It was, it was a gradual process, um, but it is one of the people that I met through it are one of the bright spots of that time. And sometime, maybe a day or two after my, after the crash, I got a voicemail from this woman who just sounded so very kind, who expressed sympathy. The prosecutor had given my name and information to her. And she said, you know, I'm from uh, the Alliance Against Intoxicated Motorists, AIM, and uh, when there's a court proceeding, I will be there. If you can come to court for the initial arraignment or whatever the first proceeding was, I'll be there. I can help explain things to you. If you can't come, I'll call you and tell you what's going on. And, and there was something in her voice, just so kind, so compassionate. And when I met her, that's, her name was Twyla, and that's exactly how she was. And after that, 
almost every court status date, I would go to court and see what happened. And she would just sit with me. She would hold my hand. She would take me for coffee afterwards and just help me understand the process. Because even as a lawyer, I at that time had no criminal experience and it was very different. And a lot of times I didn't understand what was happening. So she made sure I understand, stood it. She introduced me to the prosecutor. And then she started telling me about some of the other things AIM did. And particularly what struck me was that for victims, um, some families, you know, let's say you lose a child. A lot of people don't have life insurance on a child and they don't have the money to pay for a funeral. If AIM could, sometimes they might pay for a gravestone. Some people don't have money for that or they don't have health insurance. They would try to help couldn't be huge amounts, but could help in small ways, pay yeah. a month rent if someone lost their job because they were depressed and they couldn't go to work. So I, I started hearing about this. I went to one of the benefits. I talked with other victims. And at first I was just there because it there was some comfort, but Twyla said, do you want to join my committee? And pretty soon I was on the annual benefit committee. And then I started, um, speaking for AIM and got on their board for a while. And it really was, you know, as you said, that connecting with other people who have been through this and they were just, I was so struck by these people who had been through such tragedy and yet had such warm hearts, were helping others, were trying to reach out and make things better first for me. And then I tried to do that for people who this happened to later. And it, it was really, very, it was really very healing. Oh, I'm sure it was. Yeah. Can you explain to us uh, what a victim impact panel is? And is it hard being on that panel? Yeah, that was one of the things I did through AIM. They, um, the court system here in Cook County and some other counties um, helps fund this. If someone has a, a, a DUI, they haven't killed anybody, they haven't injured anyone, it's maybe their first DUI, almost always part of what they need to do to, um, you know, to serve a sentence or to get probation or get their license is to go to a victim impact panel. So if you're on the panel, ours usually had two victims and one offender, someone who had served their sentence and was coming back to speak. And you're talking to maybe 40, 50 people who had a DUI and they have as part of their sentence, they have to sit there and listen to your story. And the idea is very much what you were saying. If you could just reach one of those people and you hope that by sharing your stories, it will have an impact because many people walk in there and some people told me this afterwards, boy, I came in feeling like, boy, did I have bad luck. My friends drink and drive. They don't get arrested. This is, this is so unfair. And then they'd hear the story of, of my parents or someone whose child was killed coming home from prom or five years old. And they'd hear an offender talk about killing his own friend and living with that. And sometimes they come up and say, wow, I guess I am lucky that I got pulled over. And that was part of the message. Like you were lucky. Someone pulled you over before you did yeah. something like this right. and now you have a chance to change. And I I did it for a number of years, every couple months. And at some point I 
needed to transition away because when you do it, the idea is to tell the story and really get the emotion in there. And that means kind of diving into that and going back and talking about yeah. how difficult it was and really telling it as a story that draws people in. And that can, that's, can be really hard emotionally. Yeah. Um, and most people do it for a time and then they take a break and maybe they go back or maybe they don't. Um, I hope someday we'll be at a point where there aren't any more victims and we won't need these panels. Right. Well, it's, um, under, it's understandable. Uh, people could get burnt out doing it, so to speak. Yeah, it can, it can kind of get you stuck in that place, but I can see at some point I might do it again, like just because sure. I feel like it, it sometimes does, I believe it really does make a difference. Oh yeah. Now being an attorney, how did the accident change your perspective of the legal process or didn't it? It did in a, in a way, um, I understood more how, how hard it is for clients who don't understand the process. Um, most of my work is as a um, civil attorney is for corporations. So I'm usually dealing with a, a lawyer inside the company. So they generally understand better, but I do have cases for people who are maybe they just are a single business owner, um, and I met plenty of people in AIM who knew nothing about the court process. And it was so difficult for them because they would come in for that first court hearing and think there was going to be a trial and it was going to be all over. And instead, the process at the proceedings against the man who killed my parents took a year. And it was that fast because he ended up plea bargaining and, and not having a trial. For people who there's a trial, it can some take it could take a year, it can take five years. And yeah. people are immersed in this the whole time. So it, it really brought home to me um, just how, how much disconnect there is between kind of what we see of the legal process on TV and what yeah. our expectations are if we're brought into it and the reality and how hard that is for people. Because it was hard for me and, and I had a little bit of understanding oh, sure. and other law. And, and I talked to victim, victims who would just say, I don't understand this. You know, I've gone, why, why does the defense get to keep, you know, getting one more continuance and one more report? And, you know, why do they get to have letters saying what great people they are? And it, it can be a really confusing process if you don't even if you do understand it, but if you right. don't, it can, it can make it harder at the same time. I mean, I think it is an overall really good system, um, but there are, there are places to improve. You know, if I yeah. ever got, to, if I ever got to run everything, um, yeah. there are things I think I'd be very conscious of, you know, sure. to try to keep things moving along, to try to make sure victims really understand what's happening. Lisa, what are some of the mistakes people make when going through the grieving process? Um, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if there's mistakes, but there are things sometimes that you end up that can make things harder on yourself. And I uh -huh. think one is even to rush yourself. You know, when I talked about, like, I took on this extra work because I felt like I had to you know, I had to catch up. And, right. and the reality is no one actually said that to me. I, I feel like it's sorted in the water, but, but really I was partly doing that to myself because I thought, oh, 
you know, I need to get back in the swing of things. The way to feel better is just to just try to seem like everything's okay. And there, there is something to that. Like going to work can be, I mean, one, we have to make a living, but also there can be something healing about kind of going through the motions of an ordinary seeming day. But I feel like a lot of us really push ourselves to try to go back to normal, maybe too quickly, or to put on a happy face for other people. I, I was so angry and, and I recognized that that anger was, was, I felt angry at everybody. So I knew that a lot of the people I felt angry with, it wasn't about them, you know, it was about what had happened, but I was so afraid that of that coming out of, of expressing that, that I, I was like swallowing a lot of my feelings and it really, it was like swallowing poison for a year because I was so afraid to, to even let a little of that anger out, like it would explode all over and it would be terrible. And I think I, I would have been better off if I could have found sort of a safe way, you know, someone I felt comfortable with to say, I'm so angry. I don't know what to do with it. Maybe therapy or grief counseling. Um, I had gone to therapy in the past and felt like it was very helpful and I'd worked through a lot of things. And I thought, well, why would I go now? The therapist can't bring my parents back, you know, can't change this. And in retrospect, that would have been a safe place to be able to say all these things that I was afraid to say, to express all these feelings. And rather than just kind of trying to, you know, just Hold yeah. And, and one of my brothers, we talked a couple of years later. The other thing I think is hard when you're grieving is everyone grieves so differently and it can leave you feeling isolated. And this is my, my one brother, Tim, he was always there. He was the one at two in the morning in the hospital cafeteria with me. So he was, he was there and that meant a lot. And at the same time, I would say, I just, I feel like I'm falling apart. This is really hard. I'm, I'm really angry. And he'd say, I, th- I think I'm doing kind of okay. And and he was telling the truth of how he felt, but I, yeah. I ended up feeling, oh God, you know, what's wrong with me? And years later, he told me he just wasn't dealing with it at all. He said he was so out of touch with how he felt. And he ended up going through a really delayed grieving process. Yeah. So he shut down, he shut down. And, yeah, and, he shut down. And he didn't and he didn't talk to other people. No, because he felt fine. Yeah. <laughs> he said he felt yeah. fine. Um yeah. and and it's not that he should have done something different, but I think being able to recognize that even the people you love and really care about can have a really different grieving process. So you might need to talk. Yeah. Your brother, your spouse might not be able, you might not be able to relate to each other. And so going to that, maybe that grief group or that a stranger might, you know, who's been through it might be someone that it's easier to share with. And I think, you know, a lot of us are kind of afraid to, to, to do that, or we just think we should be able to handle it on our own. Lisa, the driver uh, who killed your parents was eventually sentenced to 12 years in prison. Did that bring a sense of closure or help with the grieving process at all? At first, it didn't. So there was almost this, when the sentencing was done, it was almost a, like, oh, I thought I would feel somewhat better, at least. And 
at first I didn't. I mean, part of it was I had never, as angry as I felt, I never wanted vengeance. I, I felt sad. You know, there's nothing good about someone going to prison. No. Or, and there's no winners it, in this. There's no winners. It was just one more tragedy. You know, yeah. his parents were, they, they went to my parents' church. They were roughly his, my parents' age. Like I thought, oh, how sad are they? Are they going to live until their son is out? But I wanted him, I did want him off the road because I, I felt like his history showed that perhaps nothing, that probably nothing else was going to keep him from doing this again. So there was a little bit of, okay, at least this person is off the road. And then maybe a month later, a month or two later, I did start to feel better. And I think some of it was, I was no longer um, waiting to see what would happen with that. I wasn't going to the criminal court every month or two to see what was happening. And it was as if at least this stage, one stage of this was done. And I, I started to be able to let not let go of all the pain, but more often think about the good things about my parents that I remembered where the going to court was always pushing me back to the pain and the loss. And in court, you, you do a statement um, about your loss, which is important for the judge to hear, but that also requires really focusing on that. So I did mine, I heard my brothers, um, and knowing that that was done um, did help. And I, I feel like there is, I feel like that is part of why I think our court process is a good one because there is some way to try to address this, to try to protect the community from someone who can't, you know, can't stop doing this and also to provide something that some sort of justice, some sort of recognition maybe yeah. that, yes, this was a terrible thing. This shouldn't have happened. Lisa, you wrote a book that's partly about anxiety titled Happiness, Anxiety, and Writing, which we actually featured uh, as an ad on one of our podcasts in our Facebook page. But it also touches on dealing with grief and about changing the questions that you ask yourself when you're struggling. How did that help you deal with your parents' deaths? This is something for, for me that has been very helpful throughout my life. Um, and during that time, and I think for anyone, when something terrible has happened, it can be really easy and normal and, and typical to kind of get stuck in thought patterns that only make you feel worse. I used to lie awake and imagine what happened, even though I had not seen it. And I just, I had trouble not doing that. Um, and I would think about why did this terrible thing happen? It, and, and the trouble with the question, like, why did this terrible thing happen? Is it almost invites answers that will make you feel bad? Because a lot of the answers people come up with are the world is a terrible place. People are awful um, or I deserve it. You know, I did something bad and this bad thing happened to me. So one of the things I did try to do is ask myself a different question. And one of the questions I kept asking myself, even though it sometimes was hard to, to, to think about it that way was, is there anything this week or today that I can feel grateful for? Is there anyone who I feel grateful for? And when I made myself take, you know, five or 10 minutes and just think about that, 
there were so many people I felt grateful for, and it helped me spend a little bit more time on that. There was a nurse practitioner at Loyola Hospital where my dad was, who was just so compassionate. She was so organized. She always kept us informed. She coordinated the care. And I really took some time to think about one, how kind she was, how good she was at her job. And the fact that, you know, she was a nurse in the critical care, intensive care. So, you know, almost every patient she had, it was life or death. And yet she treated us as if we were the only people that she had to take care of. So I really tried to not just make a list and say, oh, this person was kind and this person said a nice thing, but to really take a little time and think, what are the things that person did and how did that help me? And, and I think to the extent, you know, you can ask a question like that, another good one in the midst of when you're really struggling is how for just five minutes could I feel just a little better? You know, you're not gonna, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't help to say, oh, turn your frown upside down, you know, or I'm just gonna feel awesome tomorrow. But I could sometimes say, okay, maybe I could just make myself a cup of tea and just take some deep breaths, you know, or maybe I need to drink more water tomorrow, you know, really small things. But to ask yourself, is there just some small thing that I could do that might help just a little? And and sometimes that's the only way to get through is just a very small amount at a time. So a lot of the things in that book are designed to like make these small changes that feel doable um, rather than trying to like fix everything. one big, you know, gesture or huge mindset change. That's that's a great tip. What are you most uh, excited about going forward uh, with your career and your life? Wow. Um, So I, I, right now I am working on a, a new novel. I have a series I'm doing. So I'm excited about that. I'm doing the fifth in a mystery series. And I'm also excited. I've started working with other writers who, um, who have full-time careers at something else, who also maybe have published a book and they want some help with both, how do I market this, but how do I juggle all the time? Like, you know, maybe they have, they work a lot of hours um, or they work and they take care of kids and they have this book. And I feel like there's a lot of material out there for people who are trying to publish and write full time. And it's overwhelming because there's so much. And I've really enjoyed being able to help people who, um, you know, are trying to do this as something on the side. And a lot of it is practical tips, but a lot of it is kind of um, emotional and mental health things of how do you do this side thing and, and still have a life, you know, do it in a reasonable way. And in some ways, I feel like that connects to, um, the book, you know, the book on anxiety, the book, like what are ways we can live happier lives, whatever it is you're doing, whatever you're dealing with to take care, remember to take care of yourself. So I'm excited about being able to do that and and help people in that way. That does sound exciting. Lisa, how can people contact you and your nonprofit? Um, They can find out more about AIM. Their website is AIM, A- um, A-A-I-M-1, as in the number one.org. So they can find information there. There's some really great resources there. Um, 
about you know DUI issues, about grieving, uh, and they can find um, me through my website. It's Lisa Lily. That's L I S A L I L Y dot com. You can find both my fiction, nonfiction, um, a podcast I do, and some blog posts there. And that's the best place to find me. Great. Thank you, Lisa, so much uh, for being on the podcast uh, and sharing your story with us. Uh, you have been through a lot in your life, and I wish you nothing but good health and good fortune going forward. Uh, thank you for all you do to help others through your work with AIM. And thanks, everyone, for helping to make this podcast successful by listening and sharing it with your friends and family. Your comments and suggestions to improve the podcast are always welcome. Our website is www.itsarapwithrap.com. Our Facebook page is It's a Rap with Rap. And our email is It's a Rap with Rap at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. And for now, it's a wrap.